Well, grab your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to John chapter 14. The Gospel of John chapter 14. If you're a guest with us this morning on Memorial Day weekend, we're so happy to have you here. If you do not have a Bible with you, feel free to use one in the pew rack before you. Uh, Page 901, I think, will take you to John chapter 14. One of the greatest theologians in the history of the church uttered these words um, many, many years ago. He said, O Lord, O Lord, thou hast created us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. So said Aurelius Augustine. You may have heard him by the the name uh, St. Augustine. St. Augustine was not always convinced of this great reality that he prayed, this prayer that has uh, become very famous over the years throughout church history. As a young man, as some of you know, uh, Augustine pursued a sinful lifestyle. He is a man who pursued worldly philosophy. In fact, for many years, much of his young Uh, adult life and his days as a teenager were spent in wanton excess sinful activity. Uh, He lived with a woman who was not his wife. He had a mistress and his mother, Monica, was a very godly woman. And every day she would pray to God. She would plead with God that he would somehow intervene in the life of her son, that he would make himself known to this sinful young man. Like Augustine, many of us have played or are playing games with the world. We pursue sinful lifestyles. We pursue worldly philosophy. We pursue uh, selfish agendas like Augustine. And in the process, like Augustine, we come face to face with the brutal reality of what it means to live life on this side of the curse. Well, it wasn't until Augustine turned 28 years of age that he was introduced by, uh, or introduced rather, to the Bishop of Milan, a pastor, if you will, and this man's name was Ambrose. And here is the prayer that St. Augustine uttered after he was converted. He said, quote, In Milan, I found your devoted servant, the Bishop Ambrose. Unknown to me, it was you, God, who led me to him so that I might knowingly be led by him to you. And so here was a man... Uh, Speaking of the Bishop Ambrose, who was a faithful proclaimer of the Word of God. He proclaimed the gospel message. He was an expository preacher, and God used him to miraculously transform the heart of Augustine. We know him now as St. Augustine. Well, it wasn't until Augustine turned to Christ, of course, that he found the rest that his soul longed for. It wasn't until he turned the reins of his heart over to the Lord Jesus Christ that he found solace for his troubled heart. And that is the title of the message this morning, Antidote for the Troubled Heart. I want to have you stand with me as we read this passage of Scripture and pray that the Lord will do a mighty work today as we open up his word. John chapter 14, 
beginning in verse 1, Jesus says to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. The greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Will you pray with me? Father, as we continue our, our journey through the Gospel of John, I ask that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would uh, touch hearts this morning. God, we are a congregation of, of people who have experienced or are experiencing currently a tremendous amount of hurt. There are troubled people here in our presence, and to one degree, We can all confess to you, God, that we are all troubled, that we wrestle with things that we will explore later in the message. And so I do pray that we would heed the words of Jesus as he uttered those words to his disciples, that they should have hearts that are no longer troubled. So, God, I pray that your uh, spirit would do this mighty work of grace in us today. May we become either acquainted or reacquainted with your son, that there would be an intimacy that we would have with him, that we would walk with him, that we would serve him, that we would have a desire to please the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that we say and everything we do. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Jesus identifies something in this passage in his disciples that is very, very familiar to each one of us. He identifies that these are men who have troubled hearts. This morning, I want to invite you to look with me at at two major themes in this passage. And the first theme you might even consider to be introductory material. Uh, I say it's introductory material because the second theme will build off that introductory material as we really get to the very core of this passage. The first theme, of course, is the portrait of a troubled person. 
the portrait of a troubled person. It only takes a few short words for Jesus to surface what is happening deep down in the hearts of his disciples. And you can see it in verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. I want to ask this morning, first of all, what does it mean? When Jesus said to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled, what exactly does it mean to be troubled? If you would notice in your Bible the word troubled, that word troubled comes from a Greek word. It's the Greek word terasso. And terasso is a word that means to be disturbed. It means to be stirred up. It means to have uh, emotional distress or turbulence. I believe I explained this word a few weeks ago. It's kind of like this. If, if you're in the swimming pool enjoying just a, a peaceful, calm day and a bunch of kids jump in and start stirring up the water and splashing the water and throwing their toys around, that's what this word means. The word terrasso literally means to, to agitate water in a pool. And if you're like me and you're enjoying some peace and quiet in the swimming pool and a bunch of kids jump in and start splashing the water and now you're troubled. And that's exactly what the word means. A troubled person may battle with a whole host of things. A troubled person may battle with fear. A troubled person may battle with anxiety. A troubled person may, may battle with anger. He or she may battle with guilt or regret or loneliness. There's a whole host of things that can fall under this category of being troubled. Now, God's Word provides what I like to call snapshots of the troubled person. And there are a few I'd like to point to your direction. We'll put these on the screen and so you can uh, examine them for yourself. The first is found in Matthew chapter 14, verse 26. When the disciples saw him, that is, saw Jesus walking on the sea or walking on the water, they were terrified. That's the word terrasso. That is to say, they were troubled. Now, if you were with the disciples and you're out on a boat and uh, you turned to your right and saw Jesus walking on the water, would you be troubled? I would be troubled. I, I, I would say, what? It's Jesus walking on the water. That's not normal. That is troubling. And so these disciples were troubled in Luke chapter 24, verse 38. Jesus now says to his disciples, why are you troubled? That's the word terrasso. Why are, are you troubled and why do you have doubts that arise in your heart? And so that's one of the symptoms of a troubled person. They are wrestling with doubt. It's not only anxiety or anger or fear, it's they also wrestle with doubt. In John chapter 14, verse 27, Lord willing, we will move in that direction in a few weeks. Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now think ahead with me. In John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus is telling his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. He is really repeating himself. And so back in John chapter 14, verse 1, he utters those identical words. And if you put this together, you realize this, the disciples aren't listening Jesus has to say it again. In fact, if you look throughout sacred scripture, you'll see it all over the place. Do not fear. Do not 
fear. Let not your hearts be troubled. And so with the disciples, I, along with each of us, can say we are very much like the disciples. Don't you agree? That we see the imperative before us. Let not your hearts be troubled. Yet what do we do? We get anxious. We get fearful. We get scared. We get angry. We have emotional distress. We get lonely. We have fear of the future. We have fear of death. We have fear of, of, of all those things that could face us in the future. The Old Testament puts it like this. Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Have you ever seen, noticed that the, that the, uh, uh, the psalmist talks to himself a lot? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And then he preaches to himself, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. In verse 11 of the same chapter, talks to himself again, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Now he preaches again to himself, hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And so you get an idea of of what these disciples were likely wrestling with. They're wrestling with the same kinds of things that each of us wrestle with. I want to ask a second question. Why does Jesus warn of the troubled heart in particular? Why does Jesus focus on the troubled heart? Some of you have had the good pleasure of visiting a physician. And his name, his specific title is Doctor of Cardiology. How many of you have had the opportunity to go to a cardiologist? What does a cardiologist do? He is, as all Americans know, he is a heart doctor. Well, the the little Greek word cardia... Cardia is the word translated as heart. And so you have the cardiologist. Well, the cardia in the New Testament is basically who we are at the deepest level. It describes our inner self. It describes the things we do. That is our will. It describes our volition, to speak technically. So it describes what we do. It describes what we think. It's our mind. It describes how we feel, our emotions. And so when you say, uh, tell, share your heart with me today. If I asked you to share your heart with me today, you would tell me exactly how you are feeling. You would describe your fears. You would describe your, your regrets. You would describe the things you're struggling with. If you're a a student on the way to college for the first time in the fall, you would say, these are the things that I'm concerned about. I don't know who my roommate's going to be. I don't know about my professors. And I heard about Dr. Sauerwein. I heard he's, he's this kind of a professor. I heard about Dr. Moore, and he's that professor. Will I have friends? Will I succeed? Will I make it? Now you're sharing at a deep level. You're sharing from the heart. And so the cardia is who we are at the deepest level. Now, it's important to recognize that, as you all know, the heart one day may be bold and courageous. The heart may be bold and courageous like like Luther in his greatest moments. He had a heart that was bold and courageous. But the next day you can be in the fetal position in your bedroom. Have you ever been there? Where one day you are bold, you're courageous, you're willing to share the gospel with your friends, you're willing to speak boldly in the classroom, boldly in the workplace, and the next day you're shriveled up into a little ball. 
That's the essence, that's the nature of the human heart. In 2 Samuel chapter 17, there's an interesting story. You don't need to turn there. But this man is, is talking to Absalom. He says, then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion. See what the heart is like? The heart of a lion. It's filled with, it's a valiant heart. Will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father, that is King David, is a mighty man. Now, we know that King David was indeed a mighty man. There were days when he was bold. There are days when he was courageous. But there were other days when he is crying out. We just read a few of those words when he says, hope in God, where he's battling fear. He's battling anxiety. And so the heart one day may be strong and confident. The next day, the heart may be melting with fear. In Psalm 27, verse 3, David says, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. And so it is the faculty of the heart that bears the brunt of the troubles of life. It is the heart that is inclined to worry It is the heart that is inclined to be anxious or fearful or struggle with doubt or guilt or a myriad of other things. And so Jesus addresses the heart, the troubled heart of his disciples. Third, I want to ask, how does the world now deal with a troubled heart? As you look at your friends at school, as you look at your friends in the workplace, as you look at your friends in your neighborhood, we recognize that, that everyone in our culture struggles to some degree with a troubled heart. We battle anxiety, we battle fear, we battle guilt, we battle regret. How now does the world deal with a troubled heart? Well, the troubled heart, as you know, is, is part of what it means to be human. The curse of sin is the cause now of the troubled heart. So how does the world react? Uh, What I'm going to share with you in just just a moment will come as no surprise to any of you. You see it happening all the time. How do people deal with the troubled heart? First of all, many people in our culture are turning to psychology. You go to Barnes and Noble and you go to the psych section and you will see a a wall of books filled with psychology, filled with self-help, filled with positive motivation. And you don't see any books about the gospel. It's me, myself and I. And remember that the premise of secular psychology is this man is basically good. Well, for a psychologist who believes that man is basically good, he doesn't have anything to offer you. If he believes or she believes that man is basically good, then the premise is mistaken from the start. And so when the world chooses to deal with the troubled heart with psychology, here's what happens. They run into a brick wall. They may find short-term solutions, but they never find long-term solutions. Remember Augustine when he prayed, O Lord, O Lord, You have created us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. We see the world also turns to humanism. This is very popular in our culture as people turn to man-made, man-centered means to steer clear of a troubled heart. What do they run into? They run into the brick wall. 
We'll see in our culture that many people try therapy, which is really a, a, a stepson or stepsister or stepdaughter of, of secular psychology. We try therapy to, to mend the wounded heart, to help find help for our troubled hearts. There are other people that do this. They're not interested in psychology. They're not interested in humanism. They're not interested in therapy. They do what's called, this is the river in Egypt, right? Denial. Denial. They just say, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. And hopefully, when I wake up tomorrow, it will go away. That one's very familiar. Some people try the occult. They will try Ouija boards. They try witchcraft. They try Wicca. They get involved in in drugs. They get involved in alcohol. And when the world tries all of these different things, here's what they find. It doesn't work at the end of the day because the gospel is not included in those kinds of means or methodologies. The world, you see, is grasping at straws, as it were. They will try anything and everything to get relief from a a troubled heart. But the more they try to find relief apart from the gospel, the more empty, the more meaningless, and the more futile their lives become. And the next question I want to ask you is this, is what was causing the disciples' hearts now to be troubled? What was causing their hearts to be troubled? If you would turn your attention back to John chapter 13, if we examine the context, we get a a better idea of what they were wrestling with in particular. In John chapter 13, as the disciples were gathered in the room, if you remember from a few weeks ago and even last week, Jesus identified Judas Iscariot as the betrayer. So here is Jesus, fully God, fully man, headed to the cross to die for sinners. He had loved his disciples. He had been transparent with his disciples. He had taught his disciples. He was the best friend that all of them had ever had. And now he sits in a room and he says, you're the man. And Judas, what you're about to do, do it quickly. Now imagine if you were numbered among the other disciples and you're thinking, Judas, dude, how how could you? Why would you? Jesus has loved you. He has cared for you. And it brings this certain amount of turmoil into your heart to realize that your buddy was going to commit cosmic treason against Jesus Christ. There's not only that. Jesus identifies at the end of chapter 13 that Peter, another on the inner circle, Peter would deny him three times. And to add insult to injury, we have Judas Iscariot would betray Jesus. Peter would deny him three times. And then Jesus, he puts the, he puts the cherry on the cake, right? He says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to leave. And so imagine you're, you're in that room with these disciples and you see that a guy's going to commit cosmic treason. Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. And now Jesus says, I'm out of here. What happens to your heart? Filled with trouble. Your heart is filled with trouble. Any one of these things, Judas Iscariot's apostasy, Peter's denial, or the Lord Jesus Christ leaving, any one of those in and of themselves will be enough to lead the disciples to have a troubled heart. Now you put them together, explodes. It explodes. And so these disciples have hearts that are filled with trouble. I want to ask you by way of practical application this morning, what causes your heart to be filled 
with trouble. You know, we find ourselves living in a very interesting age. We, we are living in an age where compromise is the norm. Wrong is right, and right is wrong. I was going to show you the picture that I took in Seattle just two weeks ago, but it, it, it upsets me every time I look at it, so I'll just tell you about it. The picture said this. I went to wash my hands in the bathroom. You already know where I'm going with this one. And it said, it didn't say men. It said all gender bathroom. I thought to myself, where in the world are we going? Our culture is so confused. Our culture is so messed up where ethics are a thing of the past. We live in an age of gender confusion. Years ago, it would have been a problem. It's not a problem for us anymore. We live in an age of political confusion. We live in an age of of theological compromise and capitulation. In the days ahead, I will address this as I see local churches all around the world. I see even leaders in local churches raising the white flag of compromise, basically saying, we give up. We don't care about same-sex marriage anymore. We don't care about abortion on demand anymore. We don't care about divorce and remarriage anymore. We don't care about sin. Whatever happened to sin, it's out the window. The white flag is flying proudly, and many in the church simply don't care anymore. We live in an age that is dominated by religious pluralism, where as Bible-believing Christians, we are simply not allowed to say black is black and white is white. For someone like me or someone like you to say Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. That is considered to be bigoted. That is considered to be intolerant. And so we live in an age of unprecedented compromise and religious pluralism. Add to that... Add to the mix health concerns, marital discord, rebellious children, fear of the future, and a host of other problems. Any combination of these things are bound to make our hearts feel troubled. And so I want to ask, what is the antidote for the troubled heart? An antidote, of course, you know, is a medicine that is to be taken to counteract a poison. And in this case, the poison is a troubled heart. And so where does a person turn to find relief? We learn that psychology isn't the answer. Philosophy isn't the answer. Humanism isn't the answer. Drugs and alcohol, they're not the answer. Denial is certainly not the answer. Where does a person turn to find relief? Well, the answer is found in turning our attention to the perspective of a triumphant Savior. And that is, I believe, what's happening in the, the, the passage before us as we turn our attention to the triumphant Savior. Here we recognize His authority. We recognize His Lordship. And here is what Jesus says to the troubled disciples and to every troubled person at church this morning. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And I would say that this is the initial step, if you will, in understanding the perspective of the triumphant Savior. Namely, by recognizing this command. And please understand in verse 1, when he tells the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. This indeed is a command. 
This is not a suggestion. This is not something he wants the disciples to think about. He's telling his disciples and he's telling all of you who are followers of him. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, three important realities help to shape the perspective of this triumphant Savior. These great truths of Scripture will help reframe, reorient your mind and your heart, especially if you're battling with a troubled heart. Here's one thing I remember a a, a preaching professor said to me in seminary. And this was a shocker to me. I'd never thought about it. I was in my mid-20s, and he said, Class, you need to understand that every time you preach, there is a good chance that a majority of people are battling something significant in their life. And I would apply that this morning to the troubled heart. I understand that as I, as I preach this passage, that it is, there is a real possibility that not just a few of you are battling a troubled heart. There is a real possibility that a majority of you are battling a troubled heart. Your spouse may not be aware of it. Your children may not be aware of it. Your friends may not be aware of it. But you're battling something deep down in your heart. And perhaps today's the day when you can come to the end of that battling session as it were, where you can turn over your fear, your anxiety, your anger, your guilt, your regret, your misplaced shame to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so look with me at these three important realities that will help to reshape, reorient our perspective of a triumphant Savior. The first is this. I believe Jesus is calling us to focus on a divine place. Are you battling with a troubled heart, the first thing he would have us to do is focus on a divine place. Look with me at verse 1. He tells the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And here's what he says. He says, focus on a divine place. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I will go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself where I am. You may be also. I'll be honest with you that some of you in the days ahead will breathe your last. We will all breathe our last, right? There will come a day when all of us die, but some of you will die. And I will have the opportunity to officiate at your service. And at some of your services, this will be the passage that I will preach to the people of God who are still here. Why? Because Jesus offers hope. He says, focus on a divine place. Notice what happens. He says, as we focus on a divine place, realize that this is a place of many rooms. It's a place of many rooms. And if there is ever an understatement, this is it. He's saying this, in heaven, there are many rooms. You see the understatement? In heaven, there are many rooms. The man who has influenced my views on heaven, outside of Jonathan Edwards, is Randy Alcorn. If you have never read Heaven by Randy Alcorn, let me encourage you to run home this afternoon to get on Amazon and buy buy a used, cheap copy of Heaven. It will change you forever. Here's what Randy says. He says, just like the Garden of Eden... The new earth will be a place of sensory delight. 
For the young people, that means that'll be cool for the eyes, right? It's a place of sensory delight, breathtaking beauty, satisfying relationships, and personal joy. He goes on to describe some of the details of how the Bible depicts the new Jerusalem. He says, it will have all the advantages of earthly cities, but none of the disadvantages. And I don't know how you react to that, but I like the city. It is the weirdest thing that God has sent my family to. It's like every place we go gets smaller. <laughs> so I pastor a church as a youth pastor in Olympia, a town of over 100,000 people, real close to Seattle. You know, I got my Mariners, got the Seahawks, got all the, the city amenities. Then he sends us to LeGrand, 12,000 people. It's about the size of Linden. And I remember the first day I got the phone call from the senior pastor who hired me. He said, please understand when you come here, there's nothing to do here. It's like, ooh, but I need a job, so that's great. We'll, we'll create our own fund. Well, then when we moved here, I remember thinking, wow, Bellingham area. I probably shouldn't admit this to you, but I remember driving on the way to the high school, and I literally said to God, you're funny. <laughs> the window was down. I was like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> this is not getting better. This is getting worse and smaller, right? So I like the city. Is anyone with me? Probably no one. We're in the country, right? I like the city. Here's what Alcorn says. Heaven, will, the new Jerusalem, will have all the advantages of the city, but none of the disadvantages. I like that. The city, the new Jerusalem, will be filled with natural wonders, magnificent architecture, thriving culture. But it will have no crime, no pollution, no sirens, no traffic fatalities, no garbage, no homelessness. It will truly be heaven on earth. The only thing he could say to make that better would be the Mariners would win every game, right? That is great. So if you have this notion that heaven's going to be this pie in the sky where you float around and get bored for the rest of all eternity, throw that away. That is not the biblical portrait of heaven. The biblical portrait of heaven is the new Jerusalem. Revelation teaches will descend onto the earth and we will live and eat and drink and commune with Jesus and recreate and enjoy living on that new earth unto all eternity as we grow in our relationship, more on that in a moment, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, he utters this, this massive understatement, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. Listen, focus on a place. There's going to be a lot of rooms. I'll say, I'll say. He goes on in verse 3, and he says that, We ought to focus on a place that is being prepared. He says, I go and to prepare a place for you. He will prepare a place. He is preparing a place for the people of God. Listen to these scriptures. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Revelation 19, let us, rezo- let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. And the bride, the bride, that is the church, has made herself ready. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is preparing a place for the church. Now the Bible says we have made ourselves ready. Are you ready? Or are you more interested in 
this earthly existence with the crime, with the pollution, with the garbage, with the horrible baseball teams, right? Or are you interested in spending all of eternity future on the new earth? Are you prepared? Have you made yourself ready? Revelation 21, 2, when I saw a holy city, John says, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Jesus says to the disciples who are troubled of heart, Focus on a divine place. That place has many rooms. That place is being prepared. I am preparing that place. And then notice that this place is for every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible calls heaven a kingdom. Second Peter 1.11 says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Veritas today, we learn this amazing reality that the Bible describes heaven as an inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Once again, the Bible calls heaven a city. Heaven is a place for every follower of Jesus, a place where Jesus will take his people. And so be comforted this morning for you who are troubled in heart. Be comforted with the clear promise that the Lord Jesus Christ, who departed from his disciples, he will come again one day. He will come again one day. I don't know when it will be. None of us know when it will be, but we have that promise from our Lord and Savior that he will come, that he will take us to himself. Now, how should we focus now on this divine place? What are some practical points of application? I want to offer uh, four points for you this morning. First of all, we remember. All of these begin with we remember. That's what it means to build our faith. First of all, we remember we are fellow travelers on a path to the celestial city. Think John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. We are like characters in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, along with Christian along with Christian who are on this, this pilgrimage, and our ultimate aim is to reach the celestial city. By the way, it wasn't just a story for Bunyan. It was really biblical reality. First Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And so, young people, as, as, as you are tempted at the school, at the collegiate level, to commit all manner of evil, that's what the Bible says. Steer clear from the things that wage against your soul. Do this. Get excited to go to heaven. Prepare yourself to go to heaven. Falling in love with the Lord Jesus Christ day by day. Learning about the truths of his word. Learning the importance of theology. Paramount importance. Second, we remember our forwarding address. By the way, I got a card, a very nice, nice card from someone who moved to another city. Used to go to Christ Fellowship, moved to another city. And it was just a, it was a wonderful card just a few days ago. In fact, I just gave it to Jureen to read. No return address. I'm like, thanks a lot. How do I keep contact, right? We need a forwarding address. But for the Christian... The forwarding address is the celestial city, 
That's our forwarding address. Our citizenship, Paul says, is where? Give you a hint. It's not Linden. Right? Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, we remember that the hope of the gospel will be finally realized in the celestial city. See, now we see in shadows. Now we see through dark glasses. The hope of the gospel will one day be realized in the celestial city. Here's what Isaiah 62 verse 5 says. As a young man marries a young woman. Do you have the picture in your mind? As a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. Do you have the picture in your mind? Isn't that a great picture? As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Isn't being a Christian boring? Absolutely not. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Number four, we remember. We remember the balance of being in the world, but not of the world. One writer says it like this. As citizens of God's kingdom... We may not just write off the present earth as a total loss or rejoice in its deterioration. We must indeed be working for a better world now. Our efforts to bring the kingdom of Christ into fuller manifestation are of eternal significance. As we live on this earth, we are preparing for life on God's new earth. Why? Because heaven is not up there. That's the intermediate heaven. The new Jerusalem will descend onto earth. The writer goes on, as we live on this earth, we are preparing for life on God's new earth. Through our kingdom service, the building materials for that new earth are now being gathered. Bibles are being translated. Peoples are being evangelized. Believers are being renewed and cultures are being transformed. Only eternity will reveal the full significance of what has been done for Christ here. That is to say, what we do now matters. There is a school of theology. It's a school of theology that I was actually raised in that says this. Basically, we are like polishing the brass on a sinking ship. That's not, a, that's not good theology. We need to be involved in culture. We need to be involved in transforming culture. We need to see the, the gospel make an eternal and transformative difference in the lives of people. And so, do we step away from culture? Absolutely not. We get our, our hands dirty. We get our feet dirty. We get involved and we help people and we, we help see the transforming power of the gospel change the lives of people. Well, we've seen the, the first attitude that Jesus would have us have, where we focus on a divine, where we focus on specifically, we focus on a divine place, that is heaven. The second thing we focus on here is we focus on a divine person. And Jesus makes that very clear as we focus here in verse 6. You all know it very well. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. What sparked that particular exchange with Jesus is Thomas says to him in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where we're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus' answer must have shocked Thomas when he said, I am the way. 
Jesus is not a way. He is what? He is the way. And that's what we hear in our culture that, oh, Jesus may be a way. He might be one of the ways. There's Buddha, there's Muhammad, there's Kundalini, there's Mormonism, there's Jehovah's Witness. There's all, all these philosophical and religious ideologies. Jesus says, no, I am the way. He says, I am the truth. I am the life. And I am the only pathway to the Father. I am the only pathway to heaven. Here's what Jesus is driving at in verse 6. There is an exclusive Savior. There is an exclusive Savior. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. One writer says that, The truth of any doctrine excludes everything that is contrary to it. Let me say that one more time. The truth of any one doctrine excludes everything that is contrary to it. And so when Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, that means there's no other way to heaven. I can't work my way to heaven. I can't buy my way to heaven. There's no other man or woman who can earn that way to heaven for me. It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ. We must, writes Francis Schaeffer, act upon, witness, and preach this fact that what is contrary to God's revealed propositional truth is not true. And so various religions over the course of Western civilization have either rejected the exclusive role that the Lord Jesus Christ plays in salvation or they add to it. And you know some of those traditions I'm referring to. There is one tradition that says that Mary is a co-mediator with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible disagrees. The Bible says that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. His name is Jesus Christ. And so the idea that Mary can serve as a a mediator or a co-mediator with Christ strikes at the very root of the gospel and must be utterly abandoned. When the heart gets weary... When the heart gets troubled, I think you would agree with me, it's easy to turn to substitutes. It's easy to turn to an ideology. It's easy to to go to Barnes & Noble and find a book to make things better. But the perspective of the triumphant Savior reminds us our focus must be on a divine place. Our focus must be on a divine person, and that person is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, are you telling Jesus about your troubles? Are you banking all your, your chips on him, as it were? Or have you settled for any one of the, the, the meager substitutes in our culture? Have you fallen prey to one of the, the frail competitors for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you trusting him today? Is your focus riveted exclusively on Jesus and none other? We've seen that Jesus is calling now his disciples and all of us to focus on a divine place, to focus on a divine person. And there's one more thing I want to share with you and we'll close. And that is focus on a divine priority. We don't have the time to unpack verses 7 to 14. But what I see happening here is Jesus is encouraging his disciples. He is encouraging us to cultivating a relationship with God. In verse 8, Philip does not yet understand what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples. He's slow. He doesn't get it. And Jesus says, in effect, do you want to know what God is like? Just look at me. If you're asked that question, what's God like? Jesus says, just look at me. 
I've had people tell me over the years, if Jesus would just stand before me, I'd believe in him. Well, most of the people in the first century that saw Jesus didn't believe in him. A small number did. And so at the heart of cultivating a relationship with God is to believe in God. This is precisely what Jesus has been saying all along. Let me give you the truth point and draw a few points of practical application. The truth point is simply this. The antidote, the antidote for the troubled heart is to embrace the divine perspective of Jesus. Jesus reshapes our worldview. He reshapes the worldview as his, his disciples by encouraging them to focus on a divine place, a divine person, a divine priority. And I'm convinced of this, that one of the biggest reasons that Christians struggle with a troubled heart is this. If you don't remember anything else today, would you remember this? That the reason people struggle with troubled hearts is they have failed to realize and embrace the power of the gospel. The reason people struggle with troubled hearts is they have failed to realize and embrace the greatness of the gospel. A few days ago, I received a question. The question was essentially this. What does the gospel mean? And there's a definition that is given by Ray Ortland. I like it a lot. He says that the Greek word, the word where we get the word gospel, means this. It means good, merry, glad, and joyful news. And that makes man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. Maybe we ought to do that a little bit more in a Baptist church, right? Wouldn't that be cool? Where we sing and dance and leap for joy, that is the gospel. And so the antidote for the troubled heart is to embrace the divine perspective of Jesus. When our hearts grow troubled, we shift our attention to a divine place. We remember that divine place. Jesus is preparing that place for his people. And that place has many rooms. When fear seizes our souls, we shift our focus to a divine person. Jesus is in control of everything in your life, and he has made final provision for our salvation, our right standing with God. And when our hearts grow weary, when our hearts grow tired, when we feel like throwing in the towel, like many of us have, maybe even this week, we focus on divine priority. We focus on that relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. When we receive that antidote for the troubled heart, we realize this. Our faith is on the rise, and many of you have experienced that. Where you focus on a divine place, you focus on a divine person, you focus on that that relationship, the divine priority, and you say to yourself, I feel my strength, my, my faith strengthening. Faith now is on the rise. You see the opposite of a troubled heart, trusting Jesus. One writer says it like this, and this has helped me over the years. This is from a resource I've recommended to many people. Uh, Ed Welch wrote a book entitled, When I Am Afraid. When I Am Afraid. And here's what he says. He says, you will always find that fear and worry are opportunities to hear God. To either turn toward him or keep facing him and grow and trust of him. And so fear, anxiety, loneliness, 
whatever it is that sparks a troubled heart in you, that is your catalyst for gazing at the foot of the cross. That becomes your catalyst for walking with Jesus in renewed intimacy. We, of course, live in a day where many people are troubled, and I understand that many of us are troubled even on this day. Augustine was troubled up until he was about 28 years of old. But when he found his rest in Jesus, his whole perspective changed, and he became one of the most well-known thinkers and theologians in the history of the church. Indeed, his heart was restless until he found his rest in the living God. Have you found your rest today in that same God? Have you found your rest in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Our Father, we recognize that we share so many things in common with the disciples. As the disciples were growing weary, as they were growing troubled because of the apostasy that was to come from Judas Iscariot, from the impending denial of their friend Peter and the departure of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Their hearts were gripped with fear. Their hearts were gripped with anxiety. And certainly many of us can understand what that is like. But God, I pray that we would embrace a new perspective today. I pray that we would uh, realize this new perspective of a triumphant Savior that we would see the importance of focusing on uh, a divine place, a place where there are many rooms, focusing on a divine person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, a, a focus on a divine priority, that we focus on relationship with God through Christ. So we want to thank you once again, God, for the gospel. We thank you for new life in Christ. We thank you for freedom in Christ. And God, I pray that if there is someone here today looking for relief, someone who has a troubled heart, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would turn their attention to you, the God who has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross for their sins, who you raised again on the third day so that we would have eternal life, so that there would no longer be a chasm between sinful creatures and a holy God. Thank you for your encouragement today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.